Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. It turns out people have a lot to say about action research. So much so that the upcoming episode of the AR podcast featuring Dr. Christopher Stonebanks is going to be split up into two parts. Right now, you're listening to part one, where Christopher shares his path to participatory action research and the Transformative Praxis Malawi project. Make sure you check out part two as well, where Adam and Joe are going to dig a little deeper into this initiative. But for now, I'll let Joe kick it off with an introduction. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited to introduce Christopher Darius Stonebanks, PhD, whose official title is A Decent Human Being. He is a full professor of education at Bishop's University and adjunct professor at McGill University's Department of Integrated Studies and Education. But most importantly, he is one of the founders and one of the co-directors of Praxis Malawi, which is an awesome space for learning and knowledge exchange. He has always tried his hardest and has always been trying to do the right thing. We're really excited to have him here for this podcast. This would be better if it was all videotaped and then I'd have to, I'd have to, you know, respond to you every time. I don't know if you've ever done one of those uh, video interviews where they, they have one camera and they got to go back and forth and you got to go. Adam and I did one video interview thing for uh, the Sage method space, but we didn't have to, I don't, I don't think Adam, did we have to nod? Did we have to look like we were like, um, I don't know. You know, I didn't realize that the video was going to actually be what was published until a little bit through the actual recording. I didn't know what was going on. For, that came out of nowhere for me. <laughs> well, like connected directly to what we're eventually going to talk about is Joe. I don't think you were not at uh, McGill when Joe Kinchlow was here and he was the CRC and he had the Paolo Freire Center. So he was a tier one CRC at McGill. One of the critical pedagogy rock stars at the time. He did this video on what is critical pedagogy, and he decided that in the documentary that he was going to put together, along with Peter McLaren and Henry Giroux, that I should be one of the people interviewed along with those people. And I was like, totally um, not prepared to do any kind of interview like that, where they start asking you these like quick questions on video about critical pedagogy and the transformative nature of critical pedagogy. And I'm just sitting there, and and this actually does connect to transformative praxis Malawi, because as they're asking me all these questions about the transformative nature of critical pedagogy, I'm sitting at the table realizing, I can't give you any real examples. Like, I really can't give you any, like, earth-shattering examples about how critical pedagogy has done, like, these amazing things in schools, like, at all. And so there was a lot of blank stares of me looking at the video camera going, like, yeah, next question. Next question. <laughs> I don't know how they managed to put all of those next questions because I was really having this crisis, you know, because what I do is it's participatory action research and its foundations are in Paulo Freire's work. But as I'm sitting there in a Canadian context, in a Canadian university, being interviewed by an American who's asking me questions about the transformative nature of critical pedagogy and how this plays out in, you know, communities, I'm sitting there completely blankly looking at them going like, 
no, I can't give you any examples. And then they were asking me questions about like, well, you lived in the indigenous communities and the Cree communities for two years. Can you talk about how critical pedagogy, you know, played a role in that? And I'm just sitting there going like, well, I was living in the Cree communities when I was like 27, 28, teaching college. It, it was probably the furthest thing from my mind as I was just trying to tread water in the deep end. And, and they were like, yeah, but how did you use critical pedagogy and to be able to, you know, do X, Y, Z? And I'm just kind of looking at them going like, it just seemed like good pedagogy. Like it didn't seem like, or, or using action research in that environment. And you sit there and you, you realize that, well, I was doing like the natural cycle that most good teachers do of observation, reflection, plan, action. It was natural. It wasn't like something that I could give this huge amount of credit to like a single philosopher or like a book that I read or anything like that. And it was a real, it was funny, that moment of being interviewed was like a real crisis moment for me where I realized, oh, shit, really, it was really a hard moment for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I, what's funny is when you said that there was an interview with Freire, I don't know, in the 80s or 90s, and people were like, how did you come up with these brilliant ideas? He's like, I just did what was obvious to me. It wasn't like this whole thoughtful insight. It was just like, this is what I was doing. And I just reflected on it. And here we go. And it sounds like you had a kind of a similar experience as a Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, did I did I read about action research and, and Freire as a, an undergrad and a master and during my master's? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went back to the to like the textbooks that I had and I went, Oh yeah, I did read this. Oh look, I've seen things that are highlighted. <laughs> but then when you're put into a community and you know you're completely outside of the the typical comforts that you're used to when you're doing higher education, because I was teaching Seja in Mysticity, and you show up and especially in those days, it was the mid-90s, and you're like, okay, where's my classroom? And they say to you, Well, we don't have a classroom. And, and then you ask, well, where are my supplies? And they go, I don't know, where are your supplies? And then you've got 13 women who are in their early 40s that are supposed to be your students, and you're in your mid-late 20s, <laughs> you know? And it's really at that moment where you realize, well, this has to be about community. Like, you have to engage with the local community in order to be able to, to find common solutions. And so, yeah, I, I can't say that I went back to any book or any particular reading. It just seemed like the natural and right thing to do. And for me, that was like a real crisis moment, that idea of being interviewed about critical pedagogy and then realizing I always envisioned myself being a professor in order to do good, you know? And then I realized, is that not what this is going to be about? That was a crisis for me, which led to the Praxis Malawi. So you want to tell us a little bit about Praxis Malawi? Because what you were just talking about really resonates with the article that you sent us, Ethics and Action Research in Emancipation-Based Endeavors, Projects of Heart or Projects of Publication that was in the Canadian Journal of Action Research. But uh, we wanted to hear a little bit about transformative Praxis Malawi first. All right, because these things start like so any kind of like international work when you're let's say when you're already a professor and I, I had my areas of research already i was doing research in the area of anti-discrimination islamophobia that was my primary area that i was i was working on at the university at bishops and the principal of our university 
had a friend who had a project that was going on in Tanzania. And I'm pretty certain that he asked his secretary to go through all of the names of all of the professors and their profiles and anybody who had either a foreign sounding name or was doing anything that was considered to be like international in any way, he invited to his house for a dinner where we met his friend who was doing this work in Tanzania. And he started giving like a, a very Peace Corps kind of oriented speech. I think this must have been like 2008. And it was very kind of like Peace Corps oriented speech of about re-engaging, and I'm pretty sure he didn't use the term South. So he must have said something like developing nations or something like that, you know, having universities, university students going out and doing good. And his friend gave a pitch about what they were doing in Tanzania, which was kind of this combination of health and education, but there was nothing really concrete in what the person was saying. And then the principal ended with, you know, who wants to, you know, help out with this project? They can really see students going abroad. And then it was the typical administration thing of saying, and there's no funding in it whatsoever. You got to pay for your own tickets and everything. (laughs) (laughs) I think that once all of the professors stampeded out of the uh, dining room to uh, to leave, (laughs) once the meal was over, I I think maybe I was tripped. I was the last one to leave (laughs) and was, you know, was... Well, actually, I was kind of interested because at at the time, I would say the Bishop's University, well, it's not that much different than it is now, but it is a, a predominantly like middle, upper class, white institution. And most of the students, although all students are very, very lovely, most of them really didn't have very much experience outside of that bubble. And so I was having that crisis, you know, dealing with critical pedagogy where I I was very worried that my career was going to end up me talking about the two, three years I lived in Cree territory and the, you know, the 15 years of teaching in in schools, I wanted to be engaged. And I knew that I didn't want to do anything that was volunteerism. I didn't want to do anything that was exposure tourism. I was really, really firm about that. I had read a couple of books you know, that we're looking at the fantasy of the Peace Corps. And so the Peace Corps didn't resonate with me whatsoever. And I was really clear, and it was easy for me to say this to to the administration, which was, if I'm paying my way, I'm paying my way. So I'm going to go do this as an exploration for myself, not to any kind of like commitment to what your friend is doing. And I did that. And there was a faculty member at Vanier, that Steve Jordan actually introduced me to. And I had done some ethnographic work for this group of Vanier College faculty members for two years and became friends with them. And I was sitting down at a pub having a conversation with them. And I said, oh, I'm thinking about going to Tanzania. And one of the guys at the table, his name is uh, Doug Miller, his eyes lit up and he was like, oh my God, are you going to Tanzania? And I said, yeah. And he explained to me that he had started a project in Malawi because he had gone in 1967, part of like the CUSO program, which is like the Canadian version of uh, Peace Corps. If I say that CUSO, people get angry, but it's basically like the Canadian version of, of the Peace Corps. And in 67, he was sent like many other people 
that had no real, you know, training in pedagogy to go to go be a teacher in Malawi, have take on these like huge responsibilities that there's no way you'd be allowed to do this in your own backyard kind of thing, right? But he went there with the best of intentions, ended up marrying a, a local woman and uh, who was also a teacher, came back to Canada, and he was doing the typical thing that many people who leave the global south do, which was he was sending part of his paycheck back to the to the rural village that his wife was from, you know, to help maintain some decent standard of living in an impoverished area. And so he was coming close to retirement and he was trying to develop a kind of exposure tourism kind of project in the area, mostly working with nursing students. And I told him I wasn't interested in doing anything that was exposure tourism. But then he ended up saying, like, basically, I'll go with you. I'll pay my own way. I know how to speak Chewa. I think he spoke a little bit of Swahili and said, we'll rent a car. We'll just boot around uh, the area and I'll introduce you to a whole bunch of people in Malawi. And then I'll drive you into Tanzania. We'll do what you need to do in Tanzania. And I'll do that with you if you are open to the idea of taking you know, students to Malawi, if that's the project that you end up wanting to do. So that's what we did. And then I went to Tanzania. The project that had been described to me was a little bit problematic. And so I wasn't comfortable in that environment. In particular, I wasn't comfortable with the fact that you'd be sending students to a location where it seemed like students who were in the area were doing things so outside of their wheelhouse that that seemed incredibly problematic to me. And I wasn't comfortable with what had been established. And then for a lot of reasons, Malawi being more impoverished of the two, a lot more impoverished than the two countries, English for better or for worse was the language of commerce, instruction in Malawi, education, which I don't agree with, but that's what it is. And then you realize if you're gonna take students somewhere for a summer, that the language barrier is is a little bit easier for them to deal with. So there would be more chance for, you know, a truer kind of dialogue. And so then I made the commitment of working with a group of villages in the Chalanga region of Kasungu, Malawi, which is a very rural area. But I like that the Lonely Planet describes the area as a place you pass by to go somewhere more interesting. And that description was perfect for me. Right. If it's a place that's overlooked and, and, you know, is not getting attention, then that's the place that I want it to be. And it took like Adam, you know, I don't know what your experience was with initial community work, but it took like around five, six years of just dialogue with the local communities and um, just basically asking the fundamental question, which is what use are we to you? And talking to the elders, to the youth, to the village head men and women, to the chiefs. I gotta be honest with you, I kind of stayed away mostly from like the senior chiefs kind of thing, because you know, you're dealing with a lot of corruption there. And I stayed away from like anything that was too high up in the traditional authority. It's also not my style either. I really wanted to do grassroots work. And around, it took around six years of having that kind of honest dialogue where at a certain point, I remember saying to the chiefs, I, don't, I really don't know what a liberal arts university 
can do for you because you're asking for kinds of needs that was mostly based on capitalist kind of needs that I said, uh, as, as a professor of education, like I can't open up a whatever, uh, a new uh, Carlsberg plant or something like that in the area. I, that's not what I do. And you understood that they needed, they, they were looking at their lives in terms of needing money, right? And so at one point I said to the chiefs, you know, maybe it would be better if I just sent you my plane ticket money every year because the university wasn't paying for any of the stuff, right? And at the time, making the commitment to going to Malawi and working with students was out of pocket, you know, costing me around like 6000 a year. And I thought maybe that's 6000 a year, I can just dedicate it, you know, to you guys because, you know, we've been hanging out together for six years now, you know, <laughs> you know, a month and a half, two months at a time, maybe that's the answer. And, you know, got really interesting pushback to that. And through a large, a large amount of dialogue, which I remember like at year, year four, maybe it was Chief Makupo who said to me, all right, we're going to stop playing games. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> right? <laughs> like it, it took him and he was really honest about it. He goes like, it's, it's hard to figure out what you're talking about because it's so far removed from what we're used to seeing, which is universities, NGOs, not-for-profits coming somewhere, having like a three-year plan, having photos taken, and then they leave. And then for, for Chief Makupo, he was like, okay, this is like year four or five, and you seem to be returning every year. So maybe now we can turn that conversation into a, a little bit more of a, an honest conversation, if you're willing to turn it into a more honest conversation. And that's what we started doing. And he came up with the idea through consultation of all of the other people that their needs were, you know, basic, obvious needs like improvement in health, education, and development. And that through you know, a lot of, like a lot of workshops, the, the realization that their schools were not doing a great job teaching things like creativity, critical thinking, and, uh, and any kind of like social entrepreneurship in any kind of way. And so that they were kind of, they were stuck in that rut. And they admitted that they were stuck in that rut. You know, we were told by Europeans to cut down all of our forests, grow tobacco, use chemical fertilizers, and that we didn't need to grow like crops to eat. If we grew crops to sell, then we would get money and then we could then buy the food that we needed to eat. And then they realized they were at that, they were at that point in Malawi where there's such a massive amount of, of, of food insecurity that they realized that, you know, unconsciously or not, that they were duped, you know? And, and so that Chief Bakupa was the one that put forward that idea of let's not be romantic about how we can interact with the university. You know, let's not have like students and elders sitting under a mango tree, just like shooting the shit kind of thing, you know? He said, and this guy, this guy was a university graduate himself. And he said, what we need in this area is we need a space, a physical space where all of these things that we're talking about can be, can be carried out and tried out. And, uh, that was, to me, it was incredibly interesting at the same time. It was very frightening 
because what do you do when you're working with a local community using an action research approach and they basically say to you, we want a campus. That's a big deal. And that's a, that's a big, big commitment. So we all accepted the commitment. Wow. That is a serious story. And I think that there's so much that we can learn from that. I want to shift towards like a little bit of a discussion on big takeaways, if that's okay. Right. Because one of the purposes of this podcast is, you know, how can we take valuable information out of an experience such as that and share it with others so that like we can, I don't, I don't, I don't like the term best practices, right. Because everything depends on, on context, but I would like, I do have a few questions for you to t- try and like reel this in and, and perhaps have some key takeaways that are worthwhile of sharing. Right. Because there was so much in there. Is that, is that okay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So first, if it's all right, there's a couple of assumptions I want to kind of get off my chest and, and discuss with you. So I had, a, I had a chance to read the articles that you sent over. They're really great, really fascinating, well-written So one of the assumptions I want to kind of reel in here at first and foremost, is this about the campus community partnership? Like when we talk about the work that you're doing in Malawi and some of the challenges that you're experiencing, would you say at the core of it, let's call it a unit of analysis, is campus community partnership? So let's let's just clarify what you mean by campus. You mean the TPM campus? No, I, I actually meant that like you working, bringing students to Malawi to integrate in the work that you're doing in Malawi. No, Adam, so to, to be really, really blunt, because uh-huh. anybody who wants to do something like this, you and I get a lot of pushback, I would say, from other professors from other universities who don't believe me when I say to them that we really don't exist um, in the minds of the university itself because they really don't know how to assess something like this because ownership is local, right? We have a not-for-profit here in Canada where we do the grassroots raising of money and then they in Malawi have a not-for-profit there. And so ownership of the TPM campus is firmly in the hands of the local people, not the chiefs or anything like that, but the local people. So the university doesn't have a strong understanding of what we do. It goes against, I would say, the mindset of either people who look at work like this as being an opportunity for white girls to take photographs with African babies And then on the other extreme, you'll get faculty members who will just tell you this is a new form of colonialism, right? So on both ends, it's very, very difficult for people to fully comprehend what we do. And I would also say that when you're dealing with directly with community and you're really doing community-based work and it involves things like you know, physical structures, for instance, and, you know, what does it mean to work with local community to build a radio station that's going to be a community-based radio? What's the output of that that a university will be able to understand? So is my, like, priority to make sure that the entire time I'm interviewing everybody who's participating in the radio station and I'm having them do questionnaires daily, making them keep a journal Right. So at the end, I can write like a a really, you know, cool paper 
that's going to get published? Or is really the most important output the fact that the local community have now a radio station that's operational and is actually functioning for them? So in that regard, I think it's extremely confusing right now to a lot of people on what this space is. So that relationship between the university and the community in Malawi only exists at the level of human beings. It exists at the level of students who are going there and who have been, and a lot of them have made this long-term commitment, not just for fundraising purposes, but this crazy thing called WhatsApp has allowed them to continue friendships with people for extended periods of time. Like I'm talking about like over like five years, six years, where they keep on maintaining communication. So that, no, between the university and the community, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say as an immigrant to Canada that I am the institution. I don't feel that way. So I don't really feel like I reflect the institution. I kind of feel like it's more of a, a human being endeavor. And I happen to be a faculty member and the students who go have access to a faculty member who's doing this kind of work. Does, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. And I appreciate that response, actually. I mean, it opens a new layer of complexity as far as I'm concerned, right? Because, you know, this is a podcast about action research. You're a faculty <laughs> at a university, right? Yeah. So, well, I guess what I want to hear from you then is what would you say to perhaps another faculty member or student who's teetering on the bridge of getting involved with, with such work and, and what's involved with it. And to me, it sounds like based on your response to that last question, that it's a little bit of a divergence from the traditional faculty role. So what would you say to somebody who thinks that perhaps that is a path for them as it relates to action research, given your experience? I'd say look closely at what your colleagues are doing and ask yourself if you want to take on something that is going to be much more intense than perhaps your colleagues will understand. I think that my son, who is now 20, I think he said it best when he was 10 and he was starting to ask why I was gone every summer. And he was talking to my wife, who's a lecturer at McGill. And he was like, well, why is dad leaving again? And she explained what I was doing in Malawi. And then he said, do all professors do that? Leave for the summer and then go do, do work somewhere else? And she went, thought about it. And she went, no, they don't. And he's like, well, why is he doing it? And when she told me that story, I was like, he's right. Why am I doing it? <laughs> like, why? I could have gone on very easily with the uh, research I do, which is dealing with human beings, dealing with my own community of racialized Muslims and Islamophobia. And I, I would have continued on very comfortably, for a lack of a better word, doing that. But for me, for whatever reason, for whatever choices, I think dealing with the crisis that I had of, am I going to be a person who really is just living off of experiences of the past was i going to be comfortable with that and then for me once you meet somebody and that person exists in my mind then i can't walk away from that person it's just not who i am which is you know why i asked when joe said to me how do you want to be introduced you know i want to be introduced as a decent human being 
So people have to choose very, very carefully about doing that kind of work. And, and yeah, you're going to get pushback. <clears throat> I see what you're saying, Adam, you're going to get pushback from other faculty who are going to say like, well, you know, you're a professor and you're getting paid while you're there. You're getting your salary while you're there. Therefore you're being paid for this kind of work. And my response to them is like, yeah, yeah, totally. But what did you do? <laughs> you yeah. know, are you doing that kind of stuff? <clears throat> did you did you sleep in a mud hut for uh, two months on uh, on a bed that the community rallied to get for you, which you're sure was like pre World War One, <laughs> and you appreciate it because nobody else is sleeping on that mattress, mm -hmm. you know? But it it, it takes, a, and I'm telling this story now, and people are like, oh well, you just told the story, so you're doing it for your ego, um, but you're making a choice that's let's be really really frank about this kind of choice in the field that we're in most people are not going to make that kind of choice they're just not going to do it and i haven't seen it and let's say you're not going to get the same kind of merit at the university that other more traditional projects are going to give you you're just not and i think in a lot of ways it's because we're in this space right now for those of us to do this kind of work like I said earlier, where you've got to fit into one of two categories. Either you're doing Peace Corps exposure tourism kind of stuff, and you're a humanitarian, right? A missionary, right? You're doing that kind of work, <clears throat> and people think, oh, that's great. What a humanitarian. Or you're at the other extreme of faculty members who look at what you're doing and they tell you that it's the new form of colonialism and cultural imperialism. And so you're at those two kind of extremes and you're saying like, I, I don't even live in the middle of that. Like I'm, I'm not doing any, I'm like something entirely different. This is not some kind of like your you know, dichotomy of one or the other. And we find ourselves in between. This is making a choice that is entirely different than those two areas. And it's very, very difficult for people to understand that. Well, I just like to pull out that I think it's so respectable, right? And, and where I'm personally coming from is I agree with you, right? I think that there is not enough of this type of engagement and commitment from faculty, you know, who have the capacity to really dedicate themselves to such an important issue and instead are restricted by just focus first and foremost on earning as much of the academic currencies that are necessary to advance towards their tenure, right? Such as the publications mm -hmm. and the grants. So I think that I think the fact that and and hopefully more people in the future are willing to to step outside of the box and and stand up for leveraging the, the, the experience and resources that come with having a faculty position at a university and actually applying it in the field. So, and that's where I'm coming from. And I think that's an important message that we want to always circle back to in this podcast. There you have it. Leveraging institutional power in the field and being a decent human being. Join us for part two of this series with Dr. Stonebanks, where Adam continues to clarify his assumptions. Our hosts dig into issues of commitment in action research, and Christopher takes on a lightning round of Q&A about the Praxis Malawi project. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore ARPod or the Action Research Podcast. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast.